Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the hidden life cycles of stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And today I'm going to go ahead and go first. And I'm going to talk about sensory obsolescence. So where I don't do your even know what that means. Yeah, it's a where do your five senses go as you age? Your capacity oh. to sense things. Interesting. My, most of my information is from a book called The Extraordinary Endings of Practically Everything and Everybody, which is a very entertaining book. The section on sensory obsolescence I thought was particularly interesting. It, it only covers five senses. I think the current understanding is that there's seven, something like that. So we're going through taste, touch, smell, sight, and sound. And I'll okay. go ahead and start with taste. Uh, so when you are a small child, you can taste food throughout your entire mouth, the roof of your mouth, the walls of your throat, the entire surface of your tongue. So I think that's part of why kids are kind of picky. And it is definitely part of why they like sweet foods more than bitter foods. Because bitter foods are just so overwhelming because they can taste it throughout their whole mouth. The bitter is everywhere. By around age 10, tens of thousands of the taste buds that you've had all over your mouth have actually died. They have no, not been regenerated and the cells in them have died. So you taste food completely differently by the age of 10 than you did at, say, the age of two. When you're around 10 years old, the remaining taste buds are at, mostly at the tip and the rear of your tongue and around the edges. And the, we've been shown maps. A, a lot of people are shown maps at some point or another in their lives of where you most taste sweet, salty, bitter, sour. And that's not an entirely accurate visualization of where you taste things. You can taste sour stuff anywhere you've got taste buds. You can taste salty or bitter or whatever anywhere. You may be able to sense more of the taste of saltiness at certain parts of your tongue than others. But the map of, oh, you only taste sour here, or you only taste bitter here is not entirely accurate. So at the age of 10, we've lost tens of thousands of taste buds. And by the age of 30, each little ridge on your tongue, I don't know if you've ever felt one of those little sort of bumps on your tongue, that has about 245 taste buds per bump. Whoa. By age 80, you only have 88 on average per bump. Taste buds don't really regenerate once they've died off. They're not a regenerative cell particularly. And so you lose a lot of your sense of taste simply by a factor of aging and not regenerating cells. It is also the case that as you age, your mouth gets drier. And so you can't taste because your spit partially digests your food for you. And so when you don't have saliva to partially digest the food, you're not going to taste it as well because it's not being broken down into its constituent flavors. So 
a lot of why older people like truly elderly people not older people as in 10 years older than you or me but truly like 80s 90s 100s a lot of why they don't tend to have much of an appetite or they go back to liking very sweet or very salty foods is because they have so few remaining taste buds and so they either can't really taste much of anything or they have to put a lot more of any particular type of flavor into their food in order to be able to taste it oh that makes sense uh i there's a little stat here that a teenager can identify a sweetened solution as sweet when it is at a third of the sugar concentration that a person age 60 would need to be able to t tell that it was a sweetened solution. Darn those kids and their taste buds. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it kind of goes full circle. When you're a baby, you particularly like sweet foods because the flavor of everything else can be overwhelming. And then when you are a much older adult, because things have almost no flavor comparatively, you like really sweet things again. So it's an interesting flip of circumstances that results in the same outcome. I always joke that I'm going to be like the 80-year-old lady with the sriracha bottle in my purse. And I'm just going to slowly just put it on absolutely everything because I can't taste anything but sriracha. Yeah. <laughs> you will, Sarah. And I'll <laughs> yeah, be right there with you with my little jar of chili garlic sauce. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I don't love sriracha particularly, but the, the chili garlic with the red peppers, you know, the seeds still in it and stuff like that, that stuff's delicious. Nice. Nice. <laughs> so we're in this together. Awesome. So let's next move on to vision. So your sense of sight tends to reduce as you age. And a big part of it is the lenses of your eyes thicken and they discolor, kind of like paper aging. And so they refract light differently. Although a quick and dirty description of how we see things, the inputs into our eyes of light and color go through the lens of our eyes and then move through what's called aqueous humor, which is like a jelly in our eyeballs. And then it hits our retina. And our retina is made up of two major different types of cells. There are rods and cones. Rods see different intensities of light and cones see different intensities of color and different types of colors. So they work together, but as you age, your retina ages. And so your retina is less immediately responsive to inputs. So eyes will end up detecting fewer colors and less of the sort of blues and violets in the light spectrum. And you can actually see there have been different studies have looked at aging painters and the colors they use early in their lives versus later in their lives. And they use less dark blue and violet later in their lives because they can't see it, which I thought was a very interesting study. That's so sad. Those are like my favorite colors. I know. Sorry. It's okay. I'll have my sriracha. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Things will taste good. Yeah. Well, they'll taste like sriracha. 
which for you is good and that's great. <laughs> so as your retina ages and the cells are slower to activate and less sensitive, you need more light in order to actually see things. Your vision actually peaks at the age of 17. So whatever your vision was at around 17, and I'm sure there's some leeway in there of, you know, 16 to 20 or whatever, it's as close to 2020 vision as you will ever be. Now, that doesn't mean <laughs> you are likely to have 2020 vision. It's just that's the best you're ever going to get. And it's going to be all downhill from there without surgical intervention. <laughs> and a big part of that is because our eye muscles are at their most flexible. So they can our eyes can rapidly shift focus from near to far. The pupil can dilate quickly and contract quickly to allow more or less light in. And then our retina is the most sensitive. And as we age, those muscles slow down. All our muscles slow down. And so your pupil contracts less quickly and dilates less quickly. So light is excluded from or included into your eye a little more slowly. From the age of around 35 to 45, your eyesight, oh, yeah, sorry. there you go. Your eyesight is likely to not change all that much. And then the decline continues after that. So from 17 to 35, your vision is most likely to decline. And then from 35 to 45, it'll chill out for a little while. And then 45 onward, just Enjoy your reading glasses, I guess. The lens of your eye, you know, I mentioned it thickens and then it can discolor, which makes a lot of sense. It's having huge amounts of exposure to light, not all the time, but most of the time, every time your eye is open. And stuff discolors when exposed to UV radiation and visible light. But lenses also, because they stiffen and harden, it can cause cataracts which can obscure your vision as well. By the time you're around 70, your distance vision is not great. Your night vision is worse, and it's getting worse and worse. And uh, unfortunately, in one of these uh, sources I had, if you live long enough, it, chances are you'll be blind, which is kind of a bummer. Next, we'll go through hearing. And I'll also talk a little bit about what happens to your voice over time. Your hearing is fully developed by around the age seven. And a lot of people have heard of high frequency hearing loss. That's the most, that's the earliest and most common hearing loss in adults. Babies, we can respond to sounds up to 40,000 hertz, and then at age 16, our sensitivity is down to about 20,000 hertz, and it continues to drop by about 80 vibrations per second every six months, not including hearing damage. So again, I'm, I'm talking about the passage of time and what happens to your senses. And the reason we have that loss is that the cells within the ear that transfer the information you get from vibrations outside the ear, so sound waves, into the inner nerves that register in the brain as sound, those cells decline over time and they aren't regenerated as rapidly. It's very similar to 
taste buds. The cells are not regenerated over time, so we lose the ability to continue to hear as time goes on. And one thing that's very interesting is that we never lose the ability without including, say, congenital deafness, but through just general sensory decline, we never lose the ability to hear a human scream. What? Yeah. So there's a specific vocal range of a human scream. A distressed scream does not contain arbitrary frequencies. It exists between F sharp and G in the fourth octave above middle C. So it's a very specific register and a very specific set of sounds. And this set of tones requires the least amount of energy to activate the nerves of a human ear. Also, nobody talks at these frequencies. So for human speech, we've developed an unwritten moderation of tone and sound frequency that we don't tend to talk in a scream uh you know <laughs> i hope not wacky morning djs aside most people do not talk in a scream so we cognitively process screaming as a special sound and we typically unless we've completely lost all hearing we'll always be able to hear a scream and that makes a lot of sense both for us to be able to seek help for others and to be able to find people who might be screaming for us if we're lost. And up until about age 60, you're not gonna lose much hearing in terms of the full range of human speech, the sound frequencies for that. But starting at 60, that starts to decline as well. And by 75, you'll often end up missing full phrases of conversation and you can't hear a lot of constituents of say classical music or the, the nuances of it so over time you're just going to lose chunks of information there was a, an example given in one of my sources of the mabans a sudanese tribe that neither used drums or guns they traditionally spoke in whispers they never shouted and Really, only the, loud, the only loud sounds they tended to be exposed to were things like thunder or a very loud animal roar. And when their hearing was tested, not only was it significantly better at all ages than Westerners' hearing tends to be on average, but it was better than any human hearing that had been examined up to that point. So their inner ear cells were spared so much trauma that their hearing remained much more acute even at a later age, at any age, compared to people exposed to loud noises on a regular basis, people exposed to yelling and screaming. It's not good for your ears to be yelled at. It's probably not good for your voice to yell either. So that's hearing. And I've talked a bit about voices where you'll lose the ability to perceive human voices except for screams. But with your voice, you lose control over your vocal cords over time. They're a muscle and you lose control over your muscles. Not full control, but muscle control deteriorates over time. Your vo vocal cords also stiffen and stiffer vocal cords vibrate at a higher frequency, which means that your voice tends to get higher over time. That's why we have little old lady voices that are always like, instead of, you know, <laughs> the voice doesn't get 
unless you are some sort of just insane smoker, just from the ravages of time, your voice is likely to get higher. Then let's go to, so we've done three senses now. We'll go ahead to a fourth, which is smell. Smell tends to hold up the best out of the five senses that I'm covering right now. It's one of the oldest senses evolutionarily. Smell has been used by any common ancestor we've had. We don't use our sense of smell as much as a lot of other animals do. It's not how we get a ton of sensory information, but because it's such an old sense and it was so integral to so many of our common ancestors with other species, it sticks around longer. We needed it longer in the past in order to survive to reproduce. So it's programmed genetically to not deteriorate as rapidly. The olfactory nerves, so the, if you envision your nose and your nasal passages is going sort of up your face toward the bridge of your nose, sort of behind the top of the bridge of your nose are two olfactory bulbs that attach directly to your brain. And they are very directly wired to the part of the brain that processes the information, more so than most nerves, most nerve-to-brain connections. It's more direct than a lot of other nerve-to-brain direction or connections. So that helps in terms of maintaining your sense of smell over time because there are fewer intermediary connections, there are fewer parts to break down in the process, essentially. Looking at males and females ages 10 to 60, there's little decline shown in their ability to distinguish slight concentrations of things like anise, coffee, gasoline, peppermint. So somewhat strong and distinctive smells, but people are able to consistently detect similar amounts over the course of 50 years, which is a pretty long time for your body to be regenerating an ability like that. From 65-ish, your sense of smell starts to deteriorate. That seems to be a pretty consistent age through a lot of sensory obsolescence. Unless you're a smoker, which means that your sense of smell will decline significantly earlier. So that's where the sense of smell goes. It just declines through aging, much like vision, except that it declines at a much less steady rate. It doesn't decline until you turn around 65. So you're going to be able to smell things well up until a much later age. And the last sense is touch. And there's not a lot of research that I could find. And if I'm incorrect on this, please feel free someone to contact me and correct me. There's not a ton of research on the reduced ability to feel things. It has to do with a lot of different things, such as the aging of your skin and your skin getting drier, which means that you're less sensitive to being able to touch things with your fingers and manipulate them. There's also arthritis as a factor. Simply being less able to move means you're less able to feel things, but you still feel the pain of the arthritis. So it's kind of movement and touch are linked and it's difficult to tease out which is reducing the ability to do the other. There are sort of differences between how males and females ex are, seem to be willing to express that they feel pain. So men 
tend to be socialized to not show that they're feeling pain, whereas women often will readily say that they're feeling pain. But then it's not terribly uncommon for women to have a higher pain tolerance. But how much of that is socialization? How much of that is fulfilling social expectations, you know, those are tied in together. So it's actually also difficult to tell how touch changes and the sense of feeling changes over time because there's a social component to admitting and measuring how you feel. There's evidence to suggest that our sense of touch as measured by pain tolerance is programmed to diminish with age in order to protect us from daily aches and pains. Nature desensitizes us to uh, our body is completely falling apart. Thanks, nature. <laughs> Thanks, nature. That's nice. Those are all where your senses go over time. And again, I didn't factor in a lot of genetics or environmental factors, merely what happens to the body as it ages. But there are a lot of different things that can come in and cause damage or prevent damage, such as, say, hearing protection that can alter the rates of loss of sensory perception. So yeah, that's where your senses of smell, touch, hearing, vision, and taste go. Excellent. So I have a weird thing with my, with my sight. I've never, like, I, I've been wearing glasses, prescription lenses since I was really very young. So that's why it was funny to me that like your your sight will be the best it's ever going to be, no matter how bad it is when you're 17. I actually hit, oh, it was my late 30s and my vision started getting better. Oh. Only because my eye doctor said that my vision is going the other way, that I'm going to... <laughs> Instead of um, nearsighted, I'm going farsighted. So eventually I'm going to need bifocals. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I was like, because my prescription pretty much hadn't changed from the time I was like, you know, early 20s into my late 30s. And then it, it actually my prescription got better, <laughs> which was crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, eventually I'm just going to need train or bifocals. What are those called? Those no, I don't know. I'm going to need them eventually. What's the point to that? Aging isn't for sissies and I'm not even old. Nope. I think. I mean, I guess it depends on your perspective. To a 17 year old, I'm old. To a me-ager, I'm not. (laughs) To a 17th century person, you'd be kind of old. Yeah, that's true. And really healthy. Compared to yeah. most people in the seventies. Well, yeah, plague, and I don't. I haven't gotten plague or tuberculosis, or I don't have pustules or any kind of, as far as I know, any kind of thing eating me. So <laughs> look at you being all fancy, right? <laughs> I haven't had a pox lately. Me either. That I know of. So I am going to talk about mothballs. And the reason I'm going to talk about mothballs is I'm going to be doing, I mean, a little bit of revenge podcasting here. Yes. (laughs) Um, So I have a neighbor, and I don't know who it is, otherwise I would talk to them, who I'm guessing is doing this so that um, they can repel snakes. 
they're putting mothballs in the woods behind us. So we have like a shared kind of wooded Ugh. area behind all our houses. And it's a it's a myth. It is a myth that mothballs deter snakes. They do not. So copper ha- copperhead snakes are kind of a big deal in this part of the south. I don't know how large their range is, but they're actually not aggressive snakes. So as far as as far as venomous snakes, I don't think they're aggressive. They just don't want to be messed with. Yep. You don't want to they- mess with their wood piles. Nick got bit by one this year because he was pulling apart a wood pile. Yeah. Like they just want to be left alone like you and I do. Don't tear apart my house. That's scary. I'm going to bite you. Mm-hmm. I, I would do the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so this person is putting mothballs out in the woods. And so I want to talk about mothballs because I was actually curious about them. I come across them pretty frequently in my work. I can't stand them. I, I think it is one of the worst smells in the world. There is something about the smell of mothballs that just makes me gag. It's awful to me and it gives me a really bad headache, um, which is funny considering the work I'm in that I come across them every once in a while. Mm-hmm. As soon as I find them, I get rid of them so that I don't have to smell it anymore. And, and luckily, because of the way mothballs are, they sublimate really quickly and I'll get into that. What are mothballs? Mothballs are just like little balls of, the old ones are made of naphthalene and like a deodorizer, but they're found to be a lot, really flammable. So um, they're now mostly made with paradichlorobenzene. And yes, benzene is on the end of that because it's supposedly less flammable. So the old ones are generally naphthalene. The new ones are paradichlorobenzene. Both of them aren't any, paradichlorobenzene isn't any better for you or for me or for the small animals or the little kitties than naphthalene ever was. Both of them are toxic fumigants. They are pesticides. When they enter the air, um, they have to be in high concentrations to even do anything. So it's not going to work if you put it in the woods because it's going to go into the air really quickly. It has to be in an enclosed space, which is why if you're going through an old trunk of your grandma's or in an old closet, that's why you smell it because it only really works in an enclosed space. So if you're perhaps putting them in the woods, perhaps to deter snakes, they just don't work. Plus, I've read that snakes just don't care about them. Both naphthalene and paradichlorobenzene undergo sublimation, meaning they evaporate or they sublimate um, from a solid state directly into a gas. They totally bypass the liquid phase like things do, like you go from a solid to a liquid to a gas. They totally bypass that. They have weak bonds, so they easily go into the air um, and sublimate, and that's when they are pesticides. So they will kill moths, moth larvae. They can give you really bad headaches. They have the same kind of exposure hazards, um, both naphthalene and paradichlorobenzene. If humans come into contact with them, they both can cause nausea, vomiting, dizziness, fatigue, headaches, eye and nasal passage irritation. They can irritate your skin. um, And if a pet eats a mothball, um, they can have kidney or liver damage. 
And both of them are considered possibly carcinogenic. I'm pretty sure that naphthalene is known carcinogen and paradichlorobenzene is a possible carcinogen. We, we think it probably is. Naphthalene is also a neurotoxin, which means it's bad for your brain and your nerves. Mm. And, and it can cause hemolytic anemia, which basically means um, it can destroy your red blood cells. So both of them are not great. Mothballs are banned in, a, in many different countries, including China. Naphthalene is. And the chemicals in mothballs can be inhaled, absorbed through the skin. So just touching them, you need to wear gloves or something. And absorbed through the stomach and, and intestines. Cats are really sensitive to mothballs, but dogs are more likely to eat them. The old-fashioned mothballs, the naphthalene ones, are the most toxic type, but PDB, the paradichlorobenzene, they're not any better, like I said. And if you think your pet might have eaten one, you really need to get them to an emergency emergency vet situation um, because it can cause organ failure and damage. So yeah, don't put them in your clothes. Where do they go? They go into the atmosphere, basically. They, they break down, they sublimate relatively slowly if they're in enclosed space and quickly when they're out in the open. I think they, they sublimate faster when it's warmer. And when it's colder, I guess they sublimate slower and have like a needle-like structure to them. So it takes a little bit longer for them to go into the atmosphere, but they're not good for anybody and you shouldn't put them out, don't use them anymore. That was the old way of doing things and there are new ways of doing things. If you don't want moths to eat your clothes, there's a lot of other ways to keep moths away from your clothes. The best way, and moths really like to eat the wool and other natural animal fiber and furs. The best thing to do is when you, um, before, you, like if you've worn it and then you washed it, um, and you're going to put it away to put it into an airtight container and then like close the container up so that the moths can't get in. Mm -hmm. And then when you take it out, you need to put it in like a hot dryer to kind of kill the larva. So putting it in hot dryers, um, sealing it away. Um, those are really the best way to keep the moths away. Um, you don't have to use mothballs at all. Um, some people put cedar and stuff and that seems to work okay, but really just keeping things airtight that you're worried about, like your wool sweaters, um, old, old furs, um, anything like made of natural animal fibers or stuff that moths will go after. So just keep them sealed up. And if you've heard that they keep away snakes, they don't. They're bad for the environment. They're bad for everyone. Just there's better ways to keep snakes away. And I'm going to go through a, a list of things to do to keep snakes away that actually do work instead of stuff that, you know, just poisoning everyone around you to get rid of snakes. <laughs> Please don't. So keep your grass mode. Don't water your lawn as often because slugs and frogs will really like wet lawns. Um, and that's what snakes like to eat. Keep your trees and shrubs trimmed. Don't feed the birds in the warm months because birds will um, scatter the seed all over and, and it'll attract rodents and snakes like rodents, like we said. You can install perch holes 
Perch holes are like good for hawks and owls and hawks and owls love to eat snakes. So you can in, like encourage hawks and hawks and owls and they will eat your snakes. Feed your pets inside. So if you have a pet that you feed them outside, feed them inside because rodents really like dog and cat food and that will attract a snake. Move your wood pile away from your house. That way your wood pile is like not close to your house and kids aren't likely to be around a snake living in your wood pile. But snakes like wood piles and wood piles happen. So just be careful um, if you're taking firewood out of your wood pile um, because there can be a snake there. There's landscape things that you can do. Um, apparently they can't stand lava rock. I've seen this a few places. Huh. So if you use lava rock in your landscaping around the house, apparently um, they won't go near your house. This is what I've heard. I don't know. It, it was from a field ecology website. So seems likely. Seal the cracks in your house, your foundation, so that they can't get in. That way there's no snakes living in your house. And then there's something called snake fencing. And you can put snake fencing up to, I guess, keep snakes away from areas you don't want them. Uh And that apparently works. However, I would like to say, and I understand, I completely understand people are afraid of snakes. I get that. It, It seems to be a fear on a primal level. I get that. I personally am not afraid of snakes. I actually really like them. I think they're good guests to have around your house. They eat rodents. They eat mice. And generally, there are more in the United States, there are more non-venomous snakes than there are venomous snakes. And as I said earlier, copperheads really don't want to be around you. They don't want to be friends. They don't want to attack your dog unless they're threatened. So generally, like you I don't think you have to worry about them. Watch out for them. And if you see one, don't panic. You can always call like a pest control company to get come in, like move them for you. I know, and I say this all the time, waterfowl rescue, they have a snake moving thing. So if you're in the Charlotte area, you can call them and they will move a snake for you instead of freaking out. Um, wow, that's great. Yeah, they they basically don't want snakes to get killed. And I have like, I have a couple little black racers that I see in my garden every once in a while. I don't mind them. They don't scare me. They eat voles, moles, rats, mice, anything that might mess with my garden. So I don't mind them. They, we kind of coexist together. And I, I think they're just part of the natural landscape. And as I have a pond, so ponds really, they can attract snakes only because if you have fish and stuff in it, um, it'll attract things that eat fish and snakes like to eat the things that eat fish. So (laughs) they're just part of the environment, but there are things you can do besides poisoning everybody else. But where do they go? They sublimate, they go into the atmosphere to be poisonous out in the air. They're pesticides. So using them for anything other than they're supposed to be used for is I believe illegal. I'm not sure. I was reading an EPA website on them, an EPA like fact sheet on them. And they're like, don't use them for anything other than putting them in your closet to get rid of moths because that's not what they're meant for. They're not good for you. (laughs) Right. I love that list of stuff to do to deter snakes that actually works instead of putting a bunch of poison out in your backyard that doesn't work. 
Yeah. And like I said, I don't mind snakes. So I I have more of a natural area. I have this woods, woods kind of behind my back gate. And then I have a, like a really, I have a large garden that's full of perennials and stuff. And I have a pond. I don't mind them. Like they don't seem to bother me. I watch out for them. I've never, I, I've had dogs for many years and the dogs have never had an issue with them. So I know that they, that people get scared and they do see them and they worry about being bitten and that's totally understandable. But I think being cautious and thinking about your landscape is really going to go a long way. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can also encourage certain species of snakes to compete with the species that would be more harmful to you. Yes. Like black rat snakes compete for habitat with copperheads. And mm-hmm. if you have a decent black rat snake habitat and they've established their territory, you will be much less likely to have copperheads. And black rat snakes are constrictors, so they don't. They're not venomous and they, I mean, they might bite if they're super threatened, but they aren't going to inject venom in you. And they take care of the rodents, like Sarah said, that might mess with your garden. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there are other snakes that we have in this area, like king snakes. They eat other snakes. Oh, cool. So, <laughs> yeah. So there are snakes that eat other snakes. So um, if you have, if you see a king snake, around um don't bother it it is probably out there eating all the other snakes you don't like mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah there there are lots of snakes that eat other snakes as well and like i said in this in this area in particular there are more non-venomous snakes that really are good for the environment than there are venomous snakes that you need to worry about I mean, we're not even in the range of the eastern rattler. I think the only thing we have to worry about in this area is the copperhead. I've heard some rumors about timber rattlesnakes, but I've only ever seen copperheads. Yeah. And of course, other areas where our listeners are, and by like our listeners in Australia, as far as I know about Australia, everything's venomous. Yeah, that's that's also my understanding. (laughs) Like everything can kill you and they all seem like they're cool with it and have their own things. This is only for the United States. If you guys have any tips, Australia listeners, if you have any tips for like avoiding getting eaten or destroyed by all the venomous things that live there, by all means, let us know because we don't know. We don't live in Australia. But I'm willing to bet mothballs is not on the list. Mothballs are banned in Australia. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> they don't work, folks, because literally everything in Australia will kill you. And, and they still don't let mothballs in. <laughs> yeah, they were having a problem with kids getting hemolytic anemia oh, from mothballs, so they banned them, um, was my understanding from reading. They're banned in Australia and in China and in many other places. <laughs> Why are they not banned here? I know the answers to that question, so you don't need to <laughs> go into it. But I'll, I'll rhetorically ask, why? Why? And um, the naphthalene ones, the old-fashioned ones, like from your grandma's attic, yeah, those are the old ones, and they're supposedly worse than the, the, PD, the PDB, the paradichlorobenzene ones but from what i've read they're just as bad yeah i 
have mentioned before that I almost minored in chemistry then didn't. So mm -hmm. my almost minored in chemistry but didn't self is thinking paradichlorobenzene. That sounds really bad. Like I would want a hood, like a, a, a and I'm, when I say a hood, I mean a ventilated bench upon which to place that chemical so that I don't have to breathe it in and no one else does. And I'd want to only work with it in the proper containers and just, oh, that sounds horrible. Yeah. And they're little cakes of them. They're little like round little cakes and or balls of them. They're often more likely little cakes. So yeah, they're cakes of carcinogenic neurotoxins that we put on our closets. I'd rather have moths. <laughs> um, supposedly you can, there are places where you can use camphor. Camphor is a little bit safer that will help with moths, but still. Yeah. I don't think camphor is great for you. So, no, camphor is not great for you. It's probably a sight it's, better than napsaline or PDB. Paradichlor, yeah, it is. <laughs> but it's um, not a pesticide as far as I know. So some people use camphor and that's supposedly better for you. Um, it's not a neurotoxin that's going to kill you, but still not good for you to breathe. There are better things to do besides poisoning the air around you. So, mm -hmm. And they sublimate very well and that's why they are pesticides. So they go into the air very well. They get into the air and in high concentrations. That's why they kill moths and other people. <laughs> do you know if anyone's ever died from mothball inhalation? Yes. Whoa! Yeah, you have to be in an enclosed space and little kids have died from it. Oh, um, that's awful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're not eating the mothballs. They are actually like touching them and playing with them and like inhaling, inhaling them. Yeah. Ooh, those poor kids. Yeah, it's terrible. So like if you handle mothballs, if you find them and you get rid of them, um, wear gloves, wash your hands afterwards they're not meant to be played with or or touched yeah that's the old way of doing it we have new ways of doing it let's do it new ways yeah <laughs> and snakes aren't too bad no i mean it's kind of like a lot of stinging insects is mm -hmm. if you just leave them alone they'll leave you alone yeah and the, well Aren't Africanized honeybees um, the exception to that? Like, they are actually aggressive and will go after you. Oh, definitely. This is what yeah. I've heard. This is what I've heard. Um, and they're more of a problem in the Southwest. I don't think we have them here in the Southeast. I don't know. I don't think they've made it this far here. I hope not. Um, yeah. But there are a lot of um, bees that I know that's another kind of more primal fear that people have, a lot of the pollinators um, actually don't sting or don't want to sting. Mm -hmm. I've been stung by, um, what was it called? It was some kind of wasp. I was stung last year by it and it felt like a cigarette burn. It was not pleasant, but um, I, I, it was my fault. Like I didn't know that it was there and I like put my hand on the door and it was like, oh, my God. And it stung me. So um, it was just protecting itself. We need the pollinators. Um, they need to, like, keep us all alive. So if you don't know if it'll sting you, just leave it alone. Mm -hmm. You don't have to swat at it. 
and make it mad. And don't try mothballs because they don't do what you need they, them to do. They only kill moths <laughs> in the closet or in a trunk. They don't kill moths like outside of your house. <laughs> All right. That was yeah. very informative because I knew they just sort of disappeared, but I didn't know how or why. Or yeah, they, they sublimate and... Um, I didn't go into it because I'm not really good with um, chemi chemistry, but it was the, they're held together by the van der Waals process. Mm -hmm. so their molecules have weak bonds to them. Um, so that's why they sublimate instead of going from, you know, they go from solid to gas really quickly instead of going from solid to liquid to gas. Um, that was my general, general understanding of it. That's exactly how I would explain it. So Okay, good. <laughs> that's either correct or we're both wrong. <laughs> so yeah. Very Yay. Cool. Ooh, mothballs. Yay, snakes. Yeah. yeah. Just don't use them. Have I talked about using records, melting records? Nope. I haven't. Okay, cool. So if you melt, so I've done this before. I, this is actually a really, really fun project. And uh, forgive us if I've talked about this before, but I don't think I have. Um, this is a fun project um, supervised with kids as well. So you take old vinyl records and they're easy to come by, especially if you have a place like Scrap Exchange or some other reuse um, place, or you can go to um, thrift stores a lot of the time will have cheap old records. Um, using records that um, are really scratched up and can't be used for anything else is a great way to reuse these. So you take a bowl or a pot and you put your, your vinyl record over it, and then you take a heat gun, and this is going to have to be not a hair dryer. It doesn't get hot, hot enough, but a heat gun. You're going to take a heat gun and you're going to um, kind of go over the vinyl record quite a few times. You don't, don't get it too close because you'll burn it and you'll start melting it. And the, the um, goal is to get the vinyl hot enough so that it will um, droop, drape over the sides of the, I usually use a ceramic pot, um, drape over the ceramic pot or the bowl whatever you're using and the, it has to be a smaller diameter than the record so it drapes over and it makes this really cool bowl shape or a pot shape um, and then it's like this really cool shape and it's already got a hole in the bottom so it's excellent for a, a planter Ooh. like little planters um, with succulents in them this is all the rage right now so if you make little succulent planters out of records it's really cool looking and they already have a hole so they're nicely drained um, and there you go you have a new pot out of a real old record it looks really neat they cool really quickly after you take the heat off of them so it's a great reuse project for the records that are scratched up that you wouldn't listen to. Very cool. Yeah, it's a really fun project. And it's fun to watch them um, start to melt and drape over the sides. And then once you get it to the shape you want, um, you can stop and it cools really quickly. That's great. Yeah. Very cool. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, it's fun. 
I've made quite a few for people. They're fun. Neat. All right. So that's where it goes. Talked about sensory obsolescence and mothballs, which makes, you know, some sense. And you're going to be able to smell those mothballs into your old age. So chill out with the mothballs because <laughs> that sense is the uh, slowest to fade. I've been calling this person uh, the mothball bomber to my neighbors. The neighbors <laughs> I know haven't been putting them out like because they're I know they haven't been doing it. I was like, the mothball bomber is out again. Watch out. I'm about to go into the woods and try to see if I can find them because it's just ridiculous. Maybe you could put up a game cam. Catch, <laughs> catch the mothball. Mothball bomber. Yeah. <laughs> if I knew who it was, I would talk to them about it, but I don't know who it is. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to make signs about how mothballs suck. <laughs> In the woods. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're facing their house. <laughs> Give them a link to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Learn more here. <laughs> Good idea.